This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity and Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we explore the creative playing field of a writer whose credits include The War of Art, Legend of Bagger Vance, Gates of Fire, and A Man at Arms. In addition to historical fiction and inspiring nonfiction books, he also wrote the screenplays for King Kong Lives and Above the Law. Coming up, he shares tips for avoiding the resistance which plagues us all and tells us how to maintain a healthy relationship with the muse. Stay tuned for my conversation with a writer with the right stuff, Stephen Pressfield. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery. The curse of creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. Hey, Pat, thanks for having me. How do you define creativity? Creativity, to me, is the bringing forth into the material dimension that which does not exist yet, or that which exists only on the dimension of potentiality. Whether it's a dance, a movie, a novel, this podcast, whatever. I love that description because I've always thought of it as a birthing process. There seems to be months and months of pain. Yeah, it's definitely a parallel to a woman having a baby, I would say. Yeah. Something that wasn't there before suddenly is there. Do you name your babies before they're born? Do you like to have a title going into it or do you write your book and then name it after? I'll tell you a little crazy superstition I have. While I'm working on a new book, I give it a title in my files that's not the real title. And the reason I do that is to keep the devil from finding it and screwing it up. And I know you that sounds crazy, but it's definitely true. But sometimes I will sort of know what the real title is going to be, but I never title. Like if you look through my files, you could never figure out what an actual book was. That's awesome. No, I. it's funny. I'm a little different. I have to name it f- almost first because then it's real to me. And I'm like, um, oh, I got to go. I got to go be accountable to that. It's like, oh, I got to go feed and water the pet, you know? <laughs> It's really a joy to talk to you for many reasons. Uh, I I really enjoyed reading A War of Art at one time that was recommended to me many years ago. I have read it since. But your name came up in this podcast not too long ago. I was talking to Steve Higgins, who's a head writer at Saturday Night Live, and he's the announcer on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. He keeps The War of Art, several copies of it, in his office so that when somebody says, Uh, Will you speak to my son or my daughter or somebody about the business? He talks to them. And then before they leave, he gives them the book. Ah, great. Well, when you see him, tell him thanks very much. And oddly enough, the reason I wrote The War of Art was probably the same reason he keeps it handy is 
Because when people come to me and they say, you know, I've got a book in me and I want to da 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 da, I just say, here, read this. <laughs> and you do speak in the book about the resistance, the resistance of so many different things that keep people from writing or moving forward that creates, that are things like fear and other obstacles. And there's so many in there that you devote the first a section of the book to it. And it is really a great obstacle for most creatives is to even determine what different things are the resistance in their life. As an experienced seasoned writer, what is your sneakiest resistance that continues to come after you when you're writing? You know, resistance is so diabolical and so subtle and so nuanced that it keeps coming on with new stuff. But I will tell you, we have our mutual friend, Victoria LeBaum, who has written a book right now called Risk Forward. The resistance that's hitting me right now is exactly what she talks about in this book. And the voice that I hear in my head, the voice of resistance, says stuff like, who is going to care about these stupid stories from your life? This is these are the lamest things I've ever heard. Nobody's going to be people can be bored to death. Blah, 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 blah. And what Victoria is sort of talking about is that early stage of a project when you sort of you don't have traction quite yet and you don't really know exactly where you're going. And resistance is just trying to befuddle you, keep you from uh, for getting some r rubber hitting the road. And the only way to keep going, as she says, is just risk forward. Just take face the risk and keep going because sooner or later you will get some traction. But I'm right mired in that right now. It never goes away. Resistance, it always changes. It never goes away. Well, that's the funny thing. It changes forms even to ways that you think it's productivity. Like, I think one of the dangerous ones for people I know that they'll say, oh, I'm a great multitasker. Ah, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and so then they do a lot of things besides sit down and write. They'll go, oh, well, I'm out. Well, I'm already going to the bank. I can get the post office, <laughs> the dry cleaner. Like yeah. they have this checklist at the end of the day, they've done everything but right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and I'm sort of, of that too. We all do. We all do. But it's, it's interesting how it'll take, it'll morph to what you do for your kids, right? So that you're now sitting in the car line, waiting to pick up at school. You're adding actual things that Picking the kid up at school happens at a certain time. You don't have to add the 45 minutes of being the first guy in line in the car, right? Yes, yes, but yes. We, we, but we are self-congratulating what a good parent we are. But really, we're just a professional procrastinator. Yes, it's so true. That right? resistance will use legitimate activities that we really should be doing. We really should be visiting our father who's down in Florida, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, writing is about flow. It's about get, getting in and just doing the work, doing the work every day. You speak about that in a, a number of your books. I think it was Patty Chayefsky that said, don't think of your writing as art. Think of it as work. Do the work. If you're an artist, it will become art. I never heard that from Patty Chayefsky, but I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah. it's really interesting how you can get a certain amount of foundation built by just putting brick down at a time. And coming back as opposed to editing as you go and wearing your judgment hat and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. trying to make it perfect. Um, In fact, I would say if you start to think of it as art, you're going to sabotage yourself with that. The muse doesn't like that. She just wants to see you doing the work, laying the bricks. She didn't want, doesn't want you to start thinking, oh, I'm really creating art with a capital A. Yeah, definitely. Right.
Well, I mean, I think the process often makes the artist. When, when, I, when you think about a visual artist, the journey of making of the art, the getting lost in it, finding the colors as they come, discovering what it's about, d- deciding what your feeling is. I think anybody, a songwriter will tell you, if you sit down to write a hit love song <laughs> by some formula versus the idea of speaking of what it's like, what do you, what are you feeling when you're in love or what do you feel about not deserving love? Or when you get into that deep core stuff, I think that's when other people go, I experience that. I'm feeling that. I relate to that. And yet it is amazing that there are people that can do stuff on demand. I know. I'm I so know jealous they of them. It, but it, they can do it. Yeah. I heard a story about Cole Porter one time. You know, he, for a while, he worked in Hollywood. He would be constantly, you know, having to write scores for movies and stuff like that. Some of his songs would get rejected. Right? You bring it into the studio. It is no good. We're not putting it in the movie. And somebody asked him, you know, Gee, Cole Porter, how do you handle that rejection? He said, I got a million of them. He said, there's another trolley coming down the track at any moment. It doesn't bother me at all. I wish I felt that way, but I I do love that attitude. I pretend to have that attitude. Like I'm always, when people ask me, I go, it's a bottomless well. There's uh, something's always going to come up, but I have to dig different wells sometimes. It's not always, not always right there. I need it. So speaking of that, I wonder, do you ever experience or have probably earlier in your life experience what I call page fright? Uh, what like, is, I don't even know if I want to hear you tell me what that is. Uh, well, no, just, just the idea like when you're looking, fright? well, it is, but it's the, it's a made up idea, but it's about looking at the blank page when you start a new project. Oh yeah, maybe when, always. I think that's sort of the given, you know, every day that's a given. In fact, I would define that as resistance. That's what I would call, in a nutshell, resistance with a capital R. Yeah, that fear of facing whatever comes next. A blank page or even once you've got something going, what comes next on the next blank page? Yeah, every line after that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, it is funny. I do think that people who say, oh, it's just so easy to write. I think, are you really writing? (laughs) Yeah. Because I fight with it all the time and I enjoy it, but I still fight with it. Yeah, I'm the same way. When when I hear somebody say, oh, I just love writing, you know, I go, <laughs> I don't know what business they're in. It's not the same one I'm in. <laughs> like Gloria Steinem said, I don't like to write. I like to have written. I've heard that from a few different people. I didn't know who to, to uh, credit for it. It is glorious yeah. to be yeah. able to have written. Yeah. It's like um, going to the what, gym. It's like you just finally we stop beating your head against the wall. It feels so good. You've written the Legend of Bagger Vance, and I just watched the movie today, and it's such an amazing story. And I wonder if you wrote it at a time when you you were telling your self a story, or a muse, or angel, or something was chasing you down the path about that. Well, first of all, I don't want to make you feel bad, Pat, but I really hate the movie. I okay. hated well, the I, movie. Well, let's speak of the and, novel then. We'll speak <laughs> of the, the novel. But the novel, uh, it actually was the first one I ever had published. I was 55. I'd been trying for like 30 years without success. It just sort of came out of me in a, in a rush. And when I've kind of looked back, I think I wrote the whole thing in four months, which is unheard of for me. It usually takes two to three years and when I look back at it, at the way it's constructed, the structure of it, I have no idea why I did it the way I did or how it came out the way it did. I mean, I think it really works as a novel. It just was the muse just kind of 
after 30 years, she finally gave me a break. And that, I'll tell you one other story on that, just for whatever, maybe for our listeners. At the time, I was a screenwriter, and I'd had a screenwriting career of like maybe about 10 years, kind of a C level, you know, I was never even on the B list, you know, but I had a career. My agent was a good friend, and he had put in a lot of time kind of getting me going. And so I came into him one day and I said, I have good news and I have bad news. And the good news is I have an idea I'm really passionate about. The bad news is it's a book, not a movie. And the short version of it was, I claim that I fired him. He claims that he fired me. He told me, if you write this, we're through. I put in too much effort for you. I can't have you screwing around writing a book that nobody's going to read. I thought about it, you know, because it scared me. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. I, I just got to write it. That's what I find is that when you have a something that you need to express, when you have a story worth telling, when you have something you're passionate about, it doesn't matter how long it takes or what you have to go through. Somehow you have to bring it into the world. Yeah, it's true. And you can really feel like if I don't do this, I'm going to develop a tumor. <laughs> something bad's going to happen if I don't do this. So you, so you make the pain worse if you don't do it than if you do. Exactly. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> Create a cast, a big shadow on the future. Yeah. 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 As a writer of novels, and I imagine a guy that reads a lot, or what are the most prized books in your library? That's a great question. I'm actually reading right now, The Sun Also Rises. I'm reading it for probably the 20th time. I'm sort of a, a believer in you know, reading things over and over, or sometimes I just can't read anything else. But I'm also, I'm a big ancient Greece fan. And I, I love to read any of those books, which I've read a million times, Thucydides, Herodotus, Xenophon, Plato, any, any of those things. They're all great. Anything from, you know, 2,500 years ago or late or earlier. You're still catching up. You're, you're yeah, still I'm catching up. <laughs> I haven't made it into the, uh, into the plus centuries. I'm still in the minus centuries. Well, you, but you write a lot of historic fiction and I was impressed. You sent your newest book, uh, A Man at Arms My Way and the central character, Telamon of Ar Telamon of Arcadia, right. yeah. Uh, you, there, there was a quote in the package that you sent me that said, uh, it is one thing to study war and another to live the warrior's life. And this is a character that has been in some of your previous novels, am I right? Yes, he's been in like three of them, actually. He's the only recurring character that I have. I've wanted for a long time to write a book just about him. He's always been kind of a minor character in, other, in others. But uh, so this book, A Man at Arms, is finally only about this, this one guy. What he says, it is one thing to study war and another to live the warrior's life. If you change warrior to artist, that's kind of my credo. You know, there are a lot of people who can talk a good game, can talk about studying dance or fiction or songwriting or anything like that. But it's a whole other thing to be committed heart and soul and, and to really live that life. Now, Telemann, though, is a character who is a, a man for hire. He's a guy that does it for the money. He doesn't do it for some kind of purpose or higher thing. Well, it's a little a little deeper than that, a little subtler than that. And I'll... But he, he's, this is, it's his point of view. He says, I fight for money. I don't fight for a flag. I don't fight for a cause. I don't fight for a leader. But he is one of these characters that we've seen in other books that, that can't die, that lives, kind of reappears in century after century. So to me, he is a guy who, in the identity of a warrior, has evolved all the way to the end. 
And he's been disillusioned by victory, disillusioned by defeat, by great generals, by bad generals. And he, he fights now. He uses money as a way of kind of separating himself or detaching himself from whatever bogus cause, you know, is going. He fights for the fight alone. And the goddess that he worships is the goddess of strife, Ares, the Greek goddess of strife. So he, he's kind of at a high, a sort of a highly advanced philosophical level for a, a man at arms. Right. He seems intriguing to me. And what also I was fascinated by, and this is just because you have a love for history, I guess, and all of the locations and the place and the armature and the, the I read it and I go, this guy lived back then. I, I wasn't a history buff myself. And I think if I had to write a historic story, the Romans would have big lighters. And uh, so how much research do you do? I, I do a lot. I mean, I've really immersed myself in this over years and years, the ancient world, the ancient Greek world, Alexander the Great, the Spartans and the Roman world, too. But I also think you were you were kidding. But I think take it seriously. I do think I had a previous life back then. And I can't prove it. I don't have any memories of it, but I just feel so at home in that era. But I also really do the work. I really have studied all of the stuff, the armor, the armament, the where things were, how people talked, all that stuff. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's so authentic and it's a joyful read to sort of be taken right into the world. And once you start to get a few pages in, you're like, oh, wait a minute. You know, like it, everything else goes away. And I, I actually like that in terms of getting away from the daily news and the stock market. And the, like, it's, it's really kind of refreshing to be in a new land. From the writer's point of view, that it's the creator side of that in the sense that I wish I could time travel back there. If I could get in a machine, I'd love to go back, but I'd love to hear how people talked, but I can't. I travel there in imagination. You know, when you read, when I read the ancient texts, and I'm sure this is true of every historical writer, if you're writing about the Civil War and you're reading the letters, you know, of people, or if you're writing about, you're kind of reading between the lines as you read the letters and you're trying to say, what really happened? What was this really like? I mean, if I was really there, would they really talk like this? Not just a great exercise. It's a great pleasure to me to do that and to try to imagine myself back in, in those eras. You know, meet the, the Spartans of Thermopylae, show them my book, Gates of Fire, and say, was that close at all? Was it anything like, you know? That would and, be an intriguing. Uh, and there, yeah, and wouldn't it? When time machines happen, that's a perfect vehicle <laughs> for you, is to take your literature back and say, can I get an editor from your times? Yeah. Like I say, I'm just right now reading The Sun Also Rises. And a lot of it is set in Paris, as you know, in the 20s. And one of the things that Hemingway does is like, if you or I might be writing this, we might say something like, uh, we went down to the corner and we had a drink. But he tells you, no, we went down to the Boulevard Raspail or whatever the hell it is. We turned right. We passed the place where the little guys out on the street with the little monkeys and the little string. And then we went past the Select and past the Dome and the Rotan. And it's so great as he layers on those details, even though I don't know what the Rotan looked like or the Select or any of these famous bistros, but I'm kind of imagining something in my mind. And he, he's so vivid layering on these details that you really feel like you're there. It's a pleasure. I'm laying things on the reader that they might not even know about. They've never heard of this particular type of dagger or this particular meal that people would eat. I can't help but believe, because people told me this, that those details really work. 
And you really feel as you're reading, you're being taken back into that spot. Oh, no, it absolutely works. It's the details and your attention to detail is really valuable for setting the stage. I, I think about theatrical and film folks that are trying to make something feel authentic. Yeah. And oftentimes the costumers and they'll, they, instead of making a dress, they'll look for the uh, antique fabric and then they'll yeah. look for the right kind of thread and so forth. Because if you just make the dress for the woman, it may not hang the way it did in that era. And they may have had something that was it more important that masked their body or the fabric was heavier. So it like, it's really amazing when any of those components of design for a film or theater, they're not satisfied until they found the actual sound of the musket. Yeah. And what fun it must be to be a costumer or to dress those rooms, you know, to find exactly the right old time clock. Or even I know Pete Doctor is a friend of yours. Another place that's really interesting to me is animated film, because it's not like there's a room there. They've had to completely invent that room, complete with where are the corners and what's in the corner and where does the light come from and what's tchotchkes are on the table. When you're watching it, it seems seamless. You just say, oh, there's the mouse walking across the room. Right. You know? But in fact, everything is planned. I remember that was really kind of a mind blower to me when I first sort of realized that all these things that, that you read or that you see in film, some Somebody thought about it. It didn't just happen, you know, and then to think if I'm going to be a writer, I got to think about that. And not only do they think about it, then they have a committee that talks about yeah, it. Right. That's, <laughs> right. that's the great that's thing the, about being a writer of fiction. You don't have to worry about that stuff. My hat's off to Pete for having to do that stuff. Yeah. And Pete and I talked about it a little bit. And here's what's interesting. In addition to all the things you just described, they then have to decide if they put them in a sweater, who does the texture of the sweater? Who does the hair on the head? There are people whose specialty is literally just skin tones yes. in, in those situations. I can't even imagine what that must be like. Huh? The, yeah. You have written quite a, a body of work. And I wonder if some of your discipline comes to having been a Marine in terms of the regiment for writing and so forth. Is discipline part of your general makeup? Well, you know, I used to be completely undisciplined. I've taught myself over years to be disciplined, but I definitely am a real believer in being disciplined. I think of it as being a professional. It's funny, my experience in the Marine Corps, I was just in the reserves back in the Vietnam era, didn't actually go to Vietnam. But while I was in, the only thing I could think about was getting out. But I found that afterwards, that discipline came back to me and I really valued it. And it was like, oh, I wish I had paid more attention but of course, like discipline in, in the military is always imposed from without. It's, you know, the sergeant or the lieutenant or whatever it is, they tell you what to do. But discipline as an artist, you is self-discipline. You're the one who has to do it. So that's the big switch. I agree. And it's interesting. There's no universal routine for how any creative works, right? It's a highly idiosyncratic kind of collection of compromises and neuroses and rituals that people have to do to create a routine. And some are morning people and some are night people. And I, I, I write in spurts. A nap helps me. Uh -huh. <laughs> other people, like other people can't stop. Uh, I had a writing partner. He gets up and he writes 1500 words in the morning and he's done by 11 and he's got the rest of the day. So I putter through it because I kind of have to take breaks. But what's your Routine. Before I tell you my routine, I just want to tell you one little story. There was an article in the LA Times 
maybe 10 or 15 years ago, where they interviewed screenwriters. And they interviewed five screenwriters, men and women, and three of them wrote in their cars. And one of them wrote in their car while it was moving. Uh, so I go figure. But just goes to show you, whatever works, works. I'm a morning person. My normal routine would have been to go to the gym, like really, really early, have breakfast with some buddies of mine, small geezers, and meet at a place in Venice. And then I'd come home, do a little correspondence, emails, and then then I just work solid for the most I've ever been able to work in a day is maybe four hours. I just can't go beyond that. And, and that's my day. So I'd finish maybe three o'clock. The office is closed and I just put it out of my mind. I can't work at night. I can't work with music playing. I used to work facing a wall, which seemed to work for me. Now I actually can look out of a window, but, but that's my style. When I wrote on sitcoms, it was really funny that nobody would ever get at home at their office. They would never hang a picture or anything because it was like you thought you were just going to be moved to another room any day. Like <laughs> you were always temporary. Uh, yeah, that's a whole um, other thing. Writing like as a team, like in a writer's room or something like that. I've never done that. That must be an amazing experience. Well, it is. I'll tell you what, I'm more akin to the to the group uh, because uh, because of coming through performance, uh -huh. being a stand up uh -huh. and so forth. It's you're on a SWAT team. And people have specialties. Yeah. So I called myself for a while a joke sniper uh -huh. when I worked on one show because I knew my job was to take one shot and hit the uh -huh. target. Yeah. And But it wouldn't be first. They wouldn't go, all right, Pat, take a shot. We would go to the run-through. We would watch a rehearsal. And I had a script open, and I would try to see where those problem areas were. And on the margins, I would write optional Oh, covers or another really? idea or huh? something. And sometimes it was a full on joke. And other times it was, I think this joke's not working because of that word they chose. And so if I saw the word was a problem, if, if it was like North Carolina, I would go, mm, no, Greenland's funnier. Like I would write Greenland, Iceland, Madagascar, like in the column and nobody would see it. But then when we were back in the writer's room, I wouldn't say anything until that came up. And if somebody said, why is this not working? I go, have you thought about using Madagascar? And then they would laugh and that problem huh. would be solved. How, how did you get that job, Pat? I know it's a weird job. I will tell you how I got it. I had been a stand-up. I was in a studio audience watching the taping of a show and the studio audience warm-up comedian who had been there some long time had lost interest in it. And it wasn't that he declared that it was just the audience wasn't engaged and he wasn't keeping them interested between the scenes. And a producer from the show had me come down to the rail and he whispered to me, do you want this guy's job next week? <laughs> and, 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 you know, as a comedian. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, just watch what he's doing because I'm having a meeting tomorrow to get a new guy for this. Ah, so so he that, knew you as a comedian, the producer? The, the producer did. And so I, I sort of was a little panicked about what it was, by the way. I took the job now as a warm-up comedian. So this was my track in, okay? Each week I was reading the scripts and I was most cautious of not stepping on storylines or punchlines when setting up scenes and so forth. But I took a cavalier attitude about what the experience was watching a taping because it's hard for the audience to see the same scene shot twice in a row or things. So uh, I yeah. would just, I would turn their interest to other things. I would say, see the guy up there with the boom microphone? How much do you think he makes? And oh. then I would interview that guy. You know, it was just sort of man on the street oh. style. 
And I had no idea. Ah. It was very relaxed and crazy idea. But what I did was I used that money I was making as a warm-up comedian to produce my first play in a theater. Ah. Diane English, who was um, the... Murphy Brown? She, well, she had a show called Love and War, which I had worked on in the audience uh -huh. as a warm-up. And one week, a, one of their story editors or producers had been gone for a family funeral or something. And she asked me, hey, do you want to come into the room? Like, she would hear the crowd laughing uh -huh. between scenes. Uh -huh. So she knew I was saying funny things about the show. You can help us punch up. And I thought, wow, that would be really fun. Like, that'd be interesting. And that kind of got me into the sort of specialty punch-up department where I wasn't really ah. writing the outline of the script or the story. And I did learn a lot from being there because there were story experts. There were people who the story's not working and therefore we don't need a, jo a joke writer because this whole page is going away. Just learning structure you and know, so forth came from that. Um, but that show was like many shows, which was based on a relationship. So like in Love Boat, uh -huh. <laughs> to, to just pick a random one, in Love Boat, every episode was, it was going to be, they were in love when they came on the boat and they were broken up after, or they had never met and they were going to fall in love on the boat and they were going to end up together. And there were like three versions of what could happen to any couple on the boat. <laughs> and that's what that show at one point felt like to me. It was like, oh, I don't know if I can stay a mechanic in this shop if the leads are almost going to kiss, but they never kiss. What, uh -huh. like, what happens? Uh, the fear was if they consummate the relationship that it wasn't going to be interesting. There wasn't going to be tension there or something. But it felt like, hey, we're writing the same love story over and over. So were you actually a, a title as a writer at that point? Or what was your title? I think I, you at that time I was. Guy. I got a couple of non-writer credits. When I worked uh, on Seinfeld, and I didn't know this at the time, I was called a special consultant. I think uh, I was called a special consultant. This now, is great. I love this stuff. These are things that nobody ever knows about, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. And it's also a great way, like you say, to learn the business, to be in a room and you hear people asking questions or, or, the, or the, the expert, the main creative dude comes in and solves the problem. You go, oh, that's how you do that. Well, I did. I'll tell you what. It was a big moment, though, when I moved from being on the warm up side of the rail to the production uh, side of the rail. Uh -huh. Right? There literally was a handrail that separated people from the business from people not in the business. And uh -huh. as a warm up. I wasn't really in the business. Oh. I was just an audience member with a microphone, basically. <laughs> How old were you when, when you were doing this warm-up? Uh, I think I was in my, maybe I was 25 or oh, young. 29. I was pretty young. Oh. And I did it for, I did 75 episodes of Seinfeld as the warm-up. And, oh. and I don't know, maybe I've told some other guests this, but what ends up getting into your craw is that you are really literally just background music until uh -huh. they need to roll again. And then in the middle of your sentence, they don't care. It doesn't matter uh -huh. what you're talking about. Ah, we're rolling. <laughs> and then you can't come back to that story, even uh -huh. if it's interesting, because you're just music to them. Uh -huh. And I used to mess with people in the audience and because I didn't want to give away T-shirts and mugs and candy. I, uh -huh. I was like, I wanted to have a conversation with them. And, and I would always try to give them permission. There are no boring questions. Nothing is wrong to ask. I will ferret out an answer from somebody on this staff if I don't know the answer. And boy, I got a few years into it. And then people were saying, is this a repeat? And I'm like, 
How can it be a repeat? We're shooting it right now. Like I would just get furious with them. <laughs> or we would shoot like a reenactment of something. And sometimes to shoot a show, you want to show it in order so that the story tells for the audience. Uh -huh. So they had previously shot a car scene or something where two characters were in a car. And uh, I would ask them to reenact it in chairs just to keep the continuity. Oh. So while they were oh. changing the set, those two actors would come, sit in the chairs, do the sequence. Wow. And, and it was good for the storytelling aspect. Then we go into the next scene and the audience is aware, oh, that's what they just were talking ah. about, as opposed to skipping that few lines, right? Huh. Wow, I had no idea that any of this went on. It's yeah, amazing. and then somebody would raise their hand. How do they put the car around them and get the scenery in? It's like, oh. Yeah, that would have been me. I would have asked that yeah. question. But also, I have to say, studio audiences, they can be glorious and they can be deadly because there's times on at Universal Studios or something, they're shooting some show nobody's heard of, no audience is interested in coming. They'll stop tourists before they get on the tram and turn them around and make them go watch a show, or a bus will pull up with prison work release guys and they'll sit them in the audience. Like <laughs> it's not, it's not test conditions like theater. You mentioned the transfer and I don't want to get into the details of you, of the transferring the novel to a movie, but it's often something that people discuss. They go, Oh, the, the book is better than the movie or this. And, and obviously being, having been a screenwriter and a novelist, you know, that the mediums are a little bit different. You have a yeah, lot, very less, different. Yeah. lot less time in a movie to tell the story in some ways. So without denigrating anybody specific, you birthed this baby, this book, The Legend of Bagger Vance, and and then you see the movie. It, it's got a big cast. It's being shot in Hollywood. It's being directed by a great director. So afterwards, was there part of it, was there something absent that really you wish could have been there? Um, is there too uh, yeah, much post-traumatic? far enough in the past that nobody's okay. going to be insulted okay. or anything I know, like that. I know, but I don't want but, to give you post-traumatic stress syndrome. No, it's okay. okay. <laughs> but I do think that, you know, The Legend of Bagger Vance definitely has spiritual elements to it. It's a very spiritual book. It's, it's taken from the structures taken from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. You know, it's about previous lives. It's about all kinds of things like that. And I think that the filmmakers didn't trust the audience to follow along in that sort of deep stuff. They were afraid, oh, we're gonna get too airy-fairy and the audience isn't gonna go with us. I thought it was a failure of nerve. They just didn't go into that place that the story needed to go. Um, but again, it's very easy to criticize from, you know, and every writer criticizes every movie that's ever been made of his stuff. So I, I don't wanna denigrate anybody. They did the best they could. Right. Now you just mentioned the inspiration was the Bhagavan. You know, is that where the initials for Bagger Vance came from? From the Bhagavanita? Uh, ex not, not quite, but you're very close. Like in the word Bhagavan, which is applied to Krishna, means um, Lord. Krishna being the, uh, you know, God in human form in the Bhagavad Gita. So from Bhagavan, I got Bagger Vance. I know, that's fascinating. I wouldn't have thought of it if I hadn't heard you just say that in the previous sentence. So that's a very <laughs> yeah. a nice tip of the hat there. And, you know, I'll tell you another little story for whatever it's worth. After the book came out, I got invited back to Augusta, Georgia, by a, a lady, and I got to play Augusta National Golf Course. That was how they invited me back. And I got to speak to 70 of this lady's, her name is Jane Howington, of her Bible class people. 
Because to them, Bagger Vance was a personal savior, was a Christ figure. And so Jane said to me, we'd had this evening with about 70 people. And she said, whatever you do, don't tell them that this is a Hindu thing because they are, you know, this is a very much of a Christian scenario. So, of course, that was the first thing I said. And everybody immediately got it and had no problem with it whatsoever and just sort of made the parallel. The idea of, uh, you know, uh, a divine guide is common to a lot of traditions. Well, I also noticed in some of your other work that faith speaks in a way that's accessible to all, but faith seems to inform things as you earlier mentioned about a muse, and I know there's references to angels and so forth. Can you just talk about how faith comes into play as you're thinking about your work? I'm definitely a believer in, in the muse, and I believe that life operates on, on two levels, and that we're on the lower level, the material level, and that works in potential are on the higher level, and that we're trying, we as artists, are trying to tap into that dimension of potentiality and bring it down. Songs already exist in the ether. And if Bruce Springsteen or Joni Mitchell writes a song, they just kind of pull it down out of, out of the ether. And I do think if you're any kind of an artist or an entrepreneur or anything like that, you realize pretty early on that these ideas are not coming from you. They're coming from some other place and they're coming through you. And you also realize that you've got to establish a good relationship with whatever that other place is so that they'll keep sending you those good ideas. And the way you establish that relationship, I think, is through humility and through not letting your ego get in the way and also through hard work and being a pro and showing up every day. If you're an artist, I think you ought to almost automatically become spiritual or have a spiritual dimension to what to what you're doing. And then if I can keep going on this subject, I also think that, you know, a lot of my fiction, ancient world fiction, is about warriors. It's a military kind of theme stuff. Alexander the Great, the Spartan, the new book, The Man at Arms, is about a Roman legionary. When you're in that world of war where death is a constant presence, you also become spiritual. You can't help but do it. You can't because you see friends pass through this dimension, never to be seen again. And you yourself pass under that scythe constantly, you know, and when you survive, you can't help but ask yourself, why me, right? Why am I alive? And what state of mind do I need to get in to confront the possibility of my death? So everything comes back to spirit eventually, I think. I, I think that whole idea of facing the land of the dead is very powerful to your um, protagonist in, in many of these situations, right? That's transferable to the reader. Definitely. Yeah. That's exactly what these things are all about. So many of your creative books, The Artist's Journey and Do the Work, I would say they're even less how-to books as more how not to, how to avoid that resistance. But I saw one title that I, I didn't have the pleasure of reading, but you wrote a book that says, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit. Yes. <laughs> Uh, that one seems a little bit less cheerleading and more brass tacks. That title surprised me. Well, that's a different book, but it's very similar. The story of that book, I'll do it quickly, is I realized one day that I had been a writer in five different fields over my life. I'd worked in advertising. I'd worked as a screenwriter, worked as a fiction writer, nonfiction writer, and a self-help writer. And I thought... You know, it's sort of like you as a comedian and all of the things you've done. You realize that there's an overlap. You learn lessons in one that apply in the other. So I thought, well, let me write a book about 
all of these things to see if I can give everything I know about writing, everything I learned about writing. The title, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, comes from advertising, where you the first lesson that you learn as an ad writer, because nobody wants to read an ad. Nobody wants to watch a TV commercial, right? They got the remote in their hand ready to click right through it. And so you learn... And like I knew, it's like even as a book writer, I can't even get my mother to read my stuff. You know, I have to pay my mother to, and she still won't read it. You learn that nobody really wants to read your latest effusion. So the answer to that is you got to make it so good, so funny, so compelling, so sexy, whatever it is. That's the first lesson I think that any writer or creative person needs to know. And a comic, certainly. Nobody wants to laugh. They want to watch you die up there, right? I don't think that's so, true. I, so, I'll tell you what my philosophy is. I don't think that's true. I think the first thing when they sit down is they want you to succeed. More than anything, they want you to succeed. And meaning they want to know that the person up there is driving the bus and knows where they're taking us. And this is going to be the great experience of my life. The second you let them down, though, the second uh, you tell a bad joke or you make a comment or you make fun of somebody who doesn't deserve being made fun of, they're like, get me off this bot. Like <laughs> there's a, uh, you know, they just, it's yeah. mutiny, this mutiny. So I think that's great lesson anyway, because it's not tough love. It's just the fact that it's not really about your writing this. When people ask you to read something, and I'm sure it happens still to you all the time. But when people say, will you read my screenplay or will you read my novel? It is like, can you take me to LAX at five o'clock on a Friday? You just can't think of enough ways to say, I'm not sure at this moment I can do that. <laughs> yeah. Is, is it okay to swear on this podcast? Yes, please. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but this is for all your readers to Google this. A guy, I can't remember his name. He wrote an article, a thing for the Village Voice, and the t title was, No, I Will Not Read Your Fucking Screenplay. And <laughs> he was, you know, he was a writer that kept getting, you know, and he goes in great detail about why he won't do it and how, what a lame thing it is to ask somebody to read it. But going back to what we were talking about, about how nobody really wants to read your shit, it's like you learn as an ad writer that writing and reading is a transaction. And that you, what the reader's giving you is something supremely valuable, and that's their attention, their time and their attention, right? That's what my mother wouldn't give me. You know, I won't read your book. But so you, as the writer, You've got to give them something that's worthy of that. Meaning, just like you and all in your stories or your stand-up or, or anything, Pat, that first sentence has got to be so good that they're going to want to read the second sentence and so on and so forth and, and all the way through. So it's it's that's the common thread in every writing, every creative thing, every dance, songwriting, everything. It's got to be great. And you, the writer, have got to make it great. Well, I wrote the beginning and the end of a book. Um, and now I'm writing the middle, but in the, in the last, well, it's, I've never a bad way to do it. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm not looking for your total approval, but it's, it, 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 what's strange about it is that I've never written a book. So I don't know the first thing about it, but I have always thought I should write a book. Please don't ask me to read it. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to ask you to read it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call you. I'm going to read it to you over the phone. <laughs> no, no, no. no I, I, well, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, the point is this. 
I have, people have said to me time and time again, you should write a book, you should write a book. And it haunts me that I, I've said that to myself and I couldn't do it. So along comes this big pandemic pause. And I think uh, I have no more excuses because uh, I have no theater productions. I have nothing to direct. I have not like, I used to use the excuses that I'm traveling and I'm uh, busy. Like I would, I had built resistance. up my resistance so strong yes. that I didn't do it. Really, this book I'm writing is about me writing a book. So the reason a I can write- book. What's that? A meta book. It is a little bit of a meta book, but because similar to all of the great stuff that uh -huh. you have already written ahead of me, it is about how personally difficult, like in the very beginning, I literally write a list of everything that I would have done that day besides writing, because this is how people behave. And at least I'm trying to be as vulnerable about the promise, which is I will write a book someday. That's the opening line. And then I ask them to go back and read it. I go, this is the journey. I'm closing the book with I just wrote a book <laughs> and to get there, I'm saying it's great. Thank you for reading it. Isn't it interesting? You finished it at the same time I finished writing it. <laughs> if you were a faster reader, I would have finished this sooner. <laughs> you may be onto something there, Pat. <laughs> but the point is I only have a hundred pages to write in between those two ideas. Uh, that's a piece of cake. You'll yeah. do that. That's no the problem. easy. No problem. That's just fill no it with problem. cement, right? <laughs> You mentioned that you exercise in the morning and you meet for the coffee. Do you have a gestational period when you have an idea or you're thinking about something? Do you have an activity uh, that that helps your thinking process when you're away from the typewriter or the keyboard or any of that stuff? Uh, my main theory here is is to turn my mind off completely. Like I said before, the, the office is closed. And the reason, and I think there's a real reason for that, it isn't just a quirk. If you will call it the muse, if you want to call it your unconscious, it's something happening in another dimension that where they're, do, they're doing the work. The goddess is doing the work. And I don't want to get in her way by worrying about it because I know she's going to deliver the next morning. Yeah, so I just turned my mind off completely. I've Although, I will say this, I used to take long walks when I was done at the end of the day, mm -hmm. you know, for exercise. And sometimes while I was walking, I would get like little notes would come to my head, you know. The muse was still working a little bit then. I'm definitely a believer in not obsessing about it in off hours. I don't know where, I think I learned that from Steinbeck. Did you ever read a uh, journal of a novel? No, I haven't. Oh, it's a wonderful book. It's while he was writing... East of Eden, I think. He's living in New York. He's a successful dude. And each morning before he would start work, he would put in like 20 minutes and just write a little journal about, you know, he and his wife went out to dinner last night and this and that and the other thing. But he talks about the writing process. And it's really good. Journal of a Novel by John Steinbeck. One of the things he said was it's the falsest kind of economy to try to work too hard at the end of the day, to try to squeeze the last juice out of the lemon. And he would say, you know, let the well fill again overnight. And I thought, ah, oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's my theory too. No, that's fantastic. And when you mentioned the hours that sometimes you put in four hours or three hours, I think that there is a period of time where productivity is at its best. I find that when I'm rehearsing as a director, when I'm working with a small cast, one or two people show, the Actors Guild allows them to work a certain amount and people always want to put in all those hours. And I go, look, a one-person show, a human only has so much capacity for this intensity or this 
focus. Yeah. Yeah. And I would rather them be fully rested tomorrow or yeah. do what they want. If they want to memorize their own, their own time or whatever. And other people go, I don't, why don't you take the whole eight hours? I'm like, I'm just going to burn the engine out of the car at that point. On, on, yeah. I mean, eight hours comes from Henry Ford and the assembly line, you know, it doesn't come from, if you're Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, you're not going to practice for eight hours. It's just, it's just crazy. Right. You know, it's the same thing. It's like at the gym, you can only train for so long. You can only run for so long and then you're just breaking the body down. Let me ask a question. Do you have any period of time? Like what percentage of time are you working in a digital thing on your computer and, and analog? Are you writing longhand at times? Never. No, I'm only on the computer. Yeah. You can't, well, you can see it because we have a screen and you see this typewriter behind me. I think that's why like I that. said typewriter. And then I, as I said it earlier, I thought, well, I'm a moron. Nobody's uh, using a typewriter anymore. Yeah, no, but I, I used to. But no, once I found the, the joys of a digital thing where you can move blocks of text around and delete and save, you know, I have to use that. Yeah. I try to keep a balance between the two. I find that longhand writing Maybe it comes from flying on airplanes or doing other things where I have a yellow pad, or maybe it's just a, a journaling approach. But I find that sometimes I write differently when it goes from my head to my hand to the page uh, than when I do it this way, you know, with the keyboard yeah. on my fingertips. However, I find the cleanup, as you said, moving text and doing things and rewriting, I find that I can be totally detached when I do that. Yeah, I mean, I can remember the old days. Maybe you, you're, I don't know if you remember this, Pat, but where you would use the scissors and you'd cut out, you know, two paragraphs of a page, literally, and with scotch tape, you'd move <laughs> it to another page and put it in there. And by the time you had, you know, 20 pages, it was like this scroll that came out of Jack Kerouac's typewriter right. or something. Yeah, it was like actually yeah. splicing film at that point. And people would have typists. And would give them this horrible thing, and the typist would make it into a... I don't think those typists got paid enough. No, no. I don't think so. And it was usually people's wives or husbands. Somebody who was the supporting cheerleader or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, the are you excited about this new book, A Man at Arms? Because it's it's been a period of time since you've written historical fiction, right? Between... Yes. What, what period of time? Years, yeah. Actually, a friend of mine was joking with me, another writer, and he said, uh, what are you working on today? Whether he stabs the guy with a spear or he <laughs> cuts his head out, you know, how many times? And I thought, maybe I'm getting to that place where I'm just kind of recycling things. I thought, I got to move to the modern world and do something contemporary. So I did a bunch of books in the contemporary world. And but I always want I missed going back to, to the ancient world. And once I got back, actually, a friend of mine this is probably more than you want to know, but he said to me, uh, I really miss when you used to use that kingly prose. That was the phrase that he used, my friend. And I knew what he meant by that was when I'm writing these books set in the ancient world, I use kind of a little bit of an archaic style. You know, like if you were reading something translated by an Oxford Don or Cambridge Don, it's a little stilted, it's a little formal. It's, and the, the reason I do that is to make it seem like it's from the ancient world. But it's also a great uh, medium, a great idiom, because you can talk about things like honor and mm. courage and loyalty in, though, in that idiom that you can't if you're using just a modern sort of thing. So I really wanted to get back to that. And I wanted to get back to this character of Telemann that I, you know, it's kind of an alter ego. I love this guy. And as soon as I got into it, this book was a really easy book to write. 
after 13 years of not being able to come up with an idea, it just was ready to come, you know, and it just sort of burst out of me. I, I am excited because a character in a book to a writer is not a character. It's like a person. It's like your brother. It's like you. It's like your children. And you want them to have their day in the sun. You want people to, to see them. And because you think, oh, they're so great. The things they say are so interesting. You want people to see that. Let me just encourage the listener that if you want to experience Stephen's new novel, A Man at Arms, about Telemond, the reluctant hero and warrior for hire, uh, you can find it at probably every major bookstore, but also check his website, stephenpressfield.com, for any updates on any of that kind of thing. And if you're not somebody, if you're creative and you haven't looked into these books like The War of Art, I would say that you will be instantly inspired and also feel compelled, I guess, to to look a little deeper inside you for the answers to fight the resistance. Stephen, I, I so appreciate you sharing your time today and sort of helping us all understand a little bit better about the writer's journey. Hey, thanks, Pat. Thanks for having me. And thanks for, it's been great fun talking to you. You know, you're, uh, this has been a real conversation. Please invite me back anytime. And the idea of looking inside yourself for the answers is really the core to how creativity comes out, to, to not self-sabotage and not beat yourself up. Just put yourself through the paces every day and produce product. Amen. A hallelujah. Church is <laughs> over today, folks. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Whizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot fun because dot com is not fun. Cheers. La, la, la.